God has been so wild lately. He doesn't seem to listen. He doesn't obey my commands, and we can't even bribe him with trees. He's gotten so out of hand, he may even have to be put down. God is not the problem here. The problem is the people who want to be the leader of the pack. We reintroduce God. We retrain people. You're listening to The God Whispers. Welcome to The God Whispers. I'm Craig D'Onofrio. And I am ever Bill Swirla. Still. I've I've tried to change that, but he won't change. You must be I, a Lutheran. I won't. You fear change. I, I will not change. <laughs> no, no change. We are today talking about law and gospel. We are up to thesis three. Man, we're creeping along here. Three. This is supposed to be faster than this, but we get bogged down. You remember that commercial? That's how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. Remember the owl? He's yeah, oh, yes, one, yes, yeah. two, crunch, crunch three. Yes. <laughs> if you would like to call the God Whispers hotline, we would like you to call the God Whispers hotline. Why? Uh, because I'm an audio kind of guy instead You're of an audio visual kind of guy. Area code 626-593-7713 or Manly Doctors 13. That's us. We have decided we are Manly Doctors. We should give each other honorary doctorates. Maybe make up some certificates. Manly doctorates. From the University of God Whispers. <laughs> GWU. It's a lot like George Washington G- University. GWU. That's right. Can we have a basketball team? <laughs> no, no. I got a doctor from GWU. That's right. Great. God Whispers University. The mothership is godwhispers.org or .com. That'll get you there. And if you want to email us, it's godwhispers at gmail.com. Gmail. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and we're just all over the place. Gmail. And the... And the, the uh, what is it, the God Whispers drove me to therapy? That's right. Kind of thing. Yes, That's the God Whispers. And the Wittenberg Trail is back up. It's back up. And it, restored it, from what I understand. It went down. Now, here's the question. Is the endless thread back up? You know, I haven't checked that. <laughs> Are you gonna go, is, wait a minute. I'm you're going look, there now. You're looking there now? Yeah, go ahead and talk. That, that means I have to talk. Amuse yourself, would okay, you? Okay, listen, while you're, while you're looking, um, mm-hmm. I'm going to read, uh, I got this as a, a, both an email and a comment, and a phone call, actually. From a guy named Michael. I've talked to Michael before, and um, and he write, wrote a, a, a long comment on episode eighty six that I think is worth uh, discussing here. I'm, I'm going to read the second paragraph um, of this. He said, "Well, I'll read the first paragraph." He says, "Great show. You touched on something that I believe is plaguing the LCMS and its preaching." That is dealing with the tension between law and gospel and preaching and using these two doctrines as a hermeneutical technique for the interpretation of Scripture. This could probably be a 50-page report, but I'll keep it short. Um, I, I don't Thank think, you. I, I don't think that, uh, that uh, WordPress allows 50-page reports. I noticed this when I began to read Luther's Church and House Postals. And, you know, these are the weekly sermons. Mm -hmm. And then on to the old Synodical Conference sermons, beginning with Walther through Walter A. Meyer. Luther and those who followed were never afraid of ending their sermons with exhortation to Christian living or using a law-gospel, law-gospel, etc. structure in the sermons. Why? Uh, They were just following the text. My question is, when did this paradigm shift in preaching happen and why? The reason I think this is still going on today, no, the reason I think, it's a question, but it's not a question. I believe many confessional Lutherans and those who teach homiletics in our seminaries are trying hard not to appear as your run-of-the-mill evangelical or guard against it, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. You'd probably agree with that, wouldn't Mm -hmm. you? Yeah. 
but it's killing the power and interpretation of the text of Scripture. Our preachers are to proclaim the full counsel of God, that is to interpret the text, and then apply law and gospel to where it's needed, just as Luther's own sermons demonstrate. The strict law-gospel structure that is heard in most of our LCMS pulpits, I believe, reduces the full effectiveness of Scripture and its law-gospel application. Now, in celebration of this show in St. Patrick's Day, I'm going to make a BLT capped off with a nice cold Heineken, my kind of guy. I'm also looking forward to your show in the canon of Scripture. So there, there, you know, that's it in a nutshell. But what do you think of that? That that um, I, I know you have an aversion to the law gospel law, yeah. Uh, you know, outline per se. But what, what what do you think of this 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 notion though that that uh, law gospel is not a is not strictly speaking a good sermon outline. Well, I, I know you've uh, chastised me on occasion on that one. I, I, uh, I have. I, I believe so that, uh, you know, you've pointed out that Jesus didn't necessarily preach law gospel sermons himself, <laughs> uh, for what that's worth. I mean, not that Jesus is someone that we should imitate or anything, or, you know, or is he? I, <laughs> I, I'm not sure, actually. I was about to say, I'm not sure that Jesus is is the paradigm for preaching. Ah, um, be, because, because first of all, it's not really Jesus who's preaching here. Now, this is this is way out there. Lord, but, forgive him; he knows not what he says. But, but it's the evangelists who have arranged his words and works into a a um, a homiletical and didactic arrangement called the gospel. Mm. So, are you saying that the apostles edited Jesus? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, you know, and then the second thing is now, of course, you could say this. With the, I say this to the epistles. Is you look at the every epistle, basically, is um, first part doctrine, second part exhortation to holy life. Okay. Pretty much. You know, Romans being the granddaddy of them all. I mean, it's a, Romans is eleven chapters of doctrine. And then about uh, four or five chapters of exhortation to holy life. Now, is that a sermon, a letter, or both? Yeah, see, that's the question. There, there are people who, who sort of, they, they like to, the, the liturgical types like to say, well, the epistles are, are actually meant to be read as sermons, and so they're, they're, you know, they're sermonic. Well, if that's the case, then you have, then there's actually kind of a biblical model for, for preaching, and it's, it's, not, um, it's not built around the ordering of law and gospel. Or they just might be epistles, <laughs> you know, those instructive letters. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I think what, what, what Michael is saying, I think, is, is, is really important, and that is we have to be careful that we, we're not laying something foreign on top of the Scriptures, you know, a matrix, as you will, so so that you know, it's like the scriptures aren't in and of themselves clear, but we have to kind of like uh, put on our red green glasses to make uh, make everything kind of come out right. Now, I, I remember I've uh, I've talked to you about this before, in that if the sermon is just a part of the liturgy as a whole. Uh, does it really have to be law or gospel or both, or can it simply be? That today uh, our passages lend us to me slapping you around for fifteen yeah, we're, minutes, we're twenty minutes of pure law, and then <laughs> or, come or, or and me me applying a, a a nice massage for twenty minutes, and then, you know, and, or, then, and then and then come crawling up to the table for the body and blood of well, Christ, right, which is absolution and forgiveness in and of itself, right? Well, you know, there's something to be said for that. I I, I think that uh, that the sermon, if we're talking preaching here. Although I think Walther's talking much more than preaching. It's, it's the entire approach to scriptures, really. 
Um, but if we're talking the sermon, that, that happens in a context. It's surrounded mm-hmm. by hymns. It's surrounded by uh, liturgical texts. It's surrounded. It's it's accompanied by the Lord's Supper. Right. So so you know, and I, I think that there's something to be said for not artificially imposing some sort of balance. You know how we talk about in the news. You know, news has to be fair and balanced. So so you have this pure law text, and you try with all of your might to squeeze some gospel out of it. What you you quoted Luther last time last week when we were talking about I did. you have to beat the text against oh, a yeah, rock yeah. or yeah, something. Yeah, I don't know if that was Luther or not, but yeah. Uh I've I've heard that said and I think it was attributed to Luther, but yeah. I don't know. So, you know, you know, you know my thinking on this law and gospel are a polar tension that 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 basically the the word is teaching two doctrines. And uh, some some passages, some texts are more law oriented, some are more gospel oriented. But I think you always have to look at them in the totality of the scriptures, not just the isolated passage, and look at it in terms of what's the intent. The intent is to make us wise to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So, well, there you have it. There you have it. <laughs> so I, I have a scenario for you. A scene area. Yeah. This is this is one of those questions like you were talking about. Law or gospel? Oh, see no yes. Or 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 let's or okay. how can you distinguish law right, and gospel? All right, what do you what do you got? What do you okay. got? The Wittenberg Trail is back up, the God Whispers are back up, but the endless thread seems to be missing. Oh. Law or gospel? Law. <laughs> Unless I mean, having to see the the endless thread itself, law or gospel would be one of the big gospel. <laughs> I don't know. I, what I, happened to the endless thread? I, I, we were supposed to go to ten thousand comments. I, nine nine thousand of them coming from a guy named James. <laughs> I, I feel as though James and maybe one or two others were doing their their works of purgation here. That this was their purgatory. Well, and where then they're it, working off their sins. See, and now it's all um, wiped out. They got to start over somewhere else. <laughs> that, that, that is a nightmare. <laughs> that could be a definition of hell, right there. Is that is that the the record of your good works keeps getting lost in some electronic trash heap? Yeah, I'm going to have to email someone and see if that can be. Re- Restored or, or what's going yeah. on here? Would you do that? Put that on your to-do list. Yeah. Write them at Wittenberg Trail and say, "Where is the endless? What happened thread? to the endless thread?" That's uh, well. I'm not, I, I maybe missed something here. I'm not feeling the love or the respect. Can you feel the love tonight? <laughs> is that your bump music? It's, hey, while you're looking at that, I'm going to keep. I'm going to press on here. Yeah, okay? you go ahead and talk about long gospel because I'm going to look at the our listenership grow, trail here. They, they grow impatient when we do this. Oh, who cares? Thesis, serious. <laughs> thesis three. Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. Uh, do I have on. your undivided attention? Let me close Wittenberg Trail. You're here. multitasking on me, dude. And you no, know what I'm that not. means? I'm, I'm single tasking. I'm, I'm looking you. at the Wittenberg Trail. Multitasking means doing <laughs> nothing well at the same time. All right. Fire away, Kimosai. I need your undivided attention as much as your meds will permit, okay? Yes, Buono. Where's <laughs> that Guano? <laughs> Buono? Excuse me. Thesis three. Rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult 
and highest art of Christians in general and of theologians in particular. I like how theologians get singled out here. That's like sinners and tax collectors. <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> no, the tax collectors aren't good enough to be sinners. No. They, they get their own category, <laughs> much like theologians. It doesn't get worse than that. See? <laughs> That's right. Christians and theologians right. in particular. I think that's referring to you and me. Um, At least you. Manly doctors. It, it is taught only by the Holy Spirit in the school of experience. Man, that, that last, <laughs> those, those last three words. Gives you a kinda, little, I'm, getting the, me, I'm getting the heebie-jeebies on that one. There's a pucker factor on that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love how Walter comes right out of the shoot with, possibly some among you is thinking, is this thesis really true? <laughs> Funny, I was thinking that just as I was reading it. Um, and he goes on. So, so the thesis, though, first of all, that it is the most the, the the most difficult and highest art of Christians to distinguish the law and the gospel. What it's, what what say ye? It's on interesting that? that on the surface, I notice he uses the word art instead of science. It, it, yeah, there's not well, no, there's not I, just some hard equation that you can set to it. Good point, right? Like fifty percent law, fifty percent gospel. Good point. Uh, so he recognizes it as an art, which means there's a flexibility involved here. And, uh, you know, the school of experience thing, it makes makes me kind of cringe at first. But having been a pastor as long as I have been, uh, I make different mistakes now than I made 12 years ago or so. Right? I mean, same with you? I make more mistakes now than yeah, I Yeah, but used they're to. different mistakes. They're, they're, uh, <laughs> I think, I think they're some, much more creative. <laughs> I think some pastors get hardened where they, they, they get to the point where they're overdoing the law, and some pastors kind of get to the point where, you know, you, you just got to be kidding me, and then you start overdoing it on the gospel. So keeping that proper tension and, and that balance, it, it's a high wire act, you know? There's, there's a, a lot of work going on. I, I think what he means, I think, is is this, this is not some kind of existential sort of thing. Although I, maybe it is. Maybe it is. I think what he's saying here is unlike the doctrines of Scripture. You know, and that was the, the previous. The previous thesis was you can get all your doctrines straight, but if you don't if you don't properly distinguish the law and the gospel, you're not a, a, an orthodox theologian. Right. I think in this one, what he's saying is that the doctrines of Scripture can be learned through study in the classroom. Okay. Okay, but the proper distinction of the law and the gospel can only be learned by the experience yeah. of, of uh, God's wrath and his mercy. <laughs> you know, and have, didn't we always say that? You know, we said that when we were in seminary, too. There's only so much you can learn in the seminary classroom. Right. You can get your history, you get your Greek and Hebrew, you can get your doctrine and, and all of that. But but you ever notice how, like, the pastoral care classes and stuff just always fell flat? Yeah, yeah. Because you can't do that in a classroom. No. You know, you, you could do a lot of scenarios and, you know, what would you say to this? But it's it's all... It's all theoretical, you know. There's, it's a lot of theory, but not much reality going didn't, on. Didn't didn't you say a few weeks ago that that Jimmy Swaggart's like preaching up a storm these he days? He sure is, and, and he's he's getting the gospel. <laughs> I mean, he's getting the gospel right. But see, th- there's a guy who doesn't have a leg to stand on anymore. No, and and and, and then he, and then he gets it. Yeah, and and I think that's exactly what Walter is saying here. Is that first of all, unless the the preacher slash theologian 
experiences the the terror and mercy of God himself and 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 experiences what it means like Ehlert says the the law reduces you to a mathematical point hmm. you are nothing yeah and 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 you know the gospel brings takes that nothing and puts it in Christ where you you then become everything that Christ has has saved and redeemed but uh, but until you you've actually experienced that and 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 applied that in your own life, I think it's impossible to preach it and to counsel it and to to apply it to others. I remember back in the summer of '93, uh, St. Louis was underwater, terrible flooding going on, and at the seminary, we a lot of us went and sandbagged and all the rest. And in one of my classes, one of the professors asked, if somebody were to come to you and said, I just lost my whole farm and, and everything I own, why is God doing this to me or why is God allowing this to happen? What would you say? And my response was, you know, I'm a stupid seminarian. Well, you know, why not you? Why not me? Why not the rest of us? We're, we all deserve to be wiped out, which isn't bad. I mean, it's, it's pretty fair to Midland kind of answer. If I had that sort of thing posed to me in reality today, you know, I think I'd be much more inclined to say, I don't know the mind of God, and I don't know why exactly. he's doing this. The answer is, I don't know. Yeah, and, and all I can <laughs> tell you is, I'm very sorry that this is happening to you, and that God will work some sort of good out of this, either for you or your neighbor or for someone else in the long run. But, uh, you know, you, you got to just trust that the Lord is in charge and that he does love you and he's redeemed you. Right. You know, I, I think I think part of that 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 experiential uh, aspect of the law and the gospel, as what Luther calls being a theologian of the cross, is that is that we have the ability to look at a situation like that and say this sucks. Yeah. Um, you know, and I I've had that. You know, you sit with people who uh, have experienced cancer mm-hmm. or sudden death. You know, in the family or something like that. And and you you can you're like Ezekiel amongst the exiles, just sitting appalled. And you just say, basically say, this really sucks. Yeah. And, and, uh, and to, you know, Jesus says this in, in Luke where he talks, they, they confront him with, with these uh, Galileans who were slaughtered by Pilate and their blood poured out all over the place, desecrated the altar, and Jesus <laughs> confronts them with a construction accident or whatever, some tower mm-hmm. fell on people. And, and his response to both is repent. Yeah. Go you know, figure. Which kind of, that, that kind of sort of blows your mind is, you know, what, what do you do when bad things happen? Well, will you repent? Yeah. But repentance, if you understand that repentance is not only contrition, but it's also faith, it's a call to trust. And, and you, you know, you kind of said that, you know, this is the point when, when you're like Job, when you're, you're you know, poor Job, he's, he's in great shape with God. <laughs> And and his his friends are telling him, you know, obviously there's something wrong here. Yeah, so what'd you, you do, Job? You know, now now they're not, they're failing to apply the law and the gospel because their, their friend is just sitting in the ash heap and they're heaping on more law. And this poor guy, he loses everything. He's got three really bad friends and a nagging wife, and that's what he's reduced <laughs> to. I mean, that, I feel so bad for Job. But you know, the the point there in Job is that there is no ready explanation for this, mm-hmm. but the response is the response of trust. To, to basically say that tr- that God in with and under this is working good and that he has trumped it all in the death of Jesus and that the death of Jesus, which reconciles all things to God, has also reconciled this mess, yeah. which incidentally sucks. Uh, you know, but but it, it, it's basically reconciled to God. God will make good. Mm-hmm. He's not going to turn it into good. 
he's going to he's going to make good under in with and under it. Though he slay me, I will bless him. Right. Yeah. Right, right. You know, the Lord kills and he makes alive, says Hannah. You know, Rod Rosenblatt is one who, he, he taught me this a long time ago, and it stuck with me that a lot of people say death, you know, it's just part of the cycle of life, you know, where <laughs> we just live and then we die, and it's just natural, you know, circle right. of life. The theology of the Lion King. By the way, my circle of life is this, uh, our poop goes out to sea, fish eat the poop, we eat the fish, so what are we eating? That's uh, the circle of life. Nice. Anyway, regardless. And and weren't we just talking about sushi last time? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Rod told me and taught me correctly, I believe. That I hope you're quoting him correctly here. Dan. I'm not quoting him at all. I'm, I'm just saying this is what he taught me. Was This is what you learned death, from him. Well, <laughs> I learned a lot of really bad stuff <laughs> well, from him. But uh, death is an invader. It's an, it, ah, we were yeah, not yeah, created yeah. to die. God no. created us to live forever. We should rightly fear death because it's unnatural. We should curse death Hate because it. yep. it's, it's brought by sin. And death is not natural. It's a horrible, terrible thing. So when people say, well, death is just natural part. Of it. No, it's not. It's not a natural part of life. No, it's an unnatural it's part of life. It's a rotten, stinking piece of garbage, and we, we abhor it. So there you have it. And yet, For those of you who think that death is and, just and, part of life. And yet. Right, I fixed and, you. There, yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> but there's the other side of it, too. Oh, yes. We must die to live. Right. Yeah. And precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And blessed are those who die in the Lord henceforth. So something so that God has taken the worst enemy and, and he's, he's basically made it into, he's done something good with it. Well, that's, yeah, that's the swirl of line there. I can work with that. I can work with that. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, throw anything you want at God and say, all right, yeah, I can use that. Yeah, I can, I can work with that. <laughs> Death, yeah, we got that covered. We, we, can, we can do something with that. That's so, you know, and that's, that's how Romans 8 sort of culminates is, is, you know, there is nothing in this life, whether even life or death, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Correct. He's got it covered. Right. He's, he's got it covered. And, and I think that's the school of experience that Walter is talking about. And that is, uh, first, as it applies to you. You know, when you come to this deep sense of your own sinfulness, and, you know, it, it happens once in a while when, when you really, either when you get caught mm-hmm. or when you have so colossally screwed up, like Jimmy Swagger, you know, I mean, just talk about just torching the whole thing. And, and you know, to his credit, he doesn't disappear from the Christian scene. No. But he dares you to believe that he's a justified sinner. <laughs> well, he, he he did spend a little time in exile, though. Well, you know, there's there's gonna yeah, there's gonna be the wilderness time. But but see, the cool thing is though is that 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 he comes back with a uh, what appears to be a remarkably sharpened understanding of grace. Right. Yes. You know, I mean, how many times in our own life when 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 it's really all gone down the tubes. That that's that's precisely the moment that you understand grace the most. Well, and this speaks to Swagger actually being a Christian. I think. Yeah, it does. That that you know here he loses all. He he really screwed up royally. But but he doesn't he doesn't make excuses and, for and it. No, and he, he, he says I've sinned. <laughs> and he's driven to his knees. He he confesses that he sinned. But yeah. but furthermore, it wasn't just a show to keep the millions rolling in. I think that his repentance was genuine repentance because now he's on little backwood radio stations proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know Jesus and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins and and. 
he's still kind of crazy charismatic. You know, I'm not a fan of his theology, but boy, some of his preaching has just been stellar. Well, I, I think, you know, Robert Capon is another guy like this. Yeah. That, that you know, the, and he writes the same thing, is, is that when, when you finally have the religion beaten out of you. Right. Which I think is the ultimate final purpose of the law is to beat the religion out of you because the law really yeah. presents this enticing this enticing thing that you know the law even says do this and you will live yeah if you do this and this and this yeah yeah no but it it holds okay. it holds out the promise of life itself if you can do it and and yet what you find is you can't do it no. And and then the, the more you're focused on it, the worse it gets. Like Paul says, I didn't know what coveting was until the law came. I was doing fine, doing fine. Look, and then the law came and said, you shall not covet. And what happens? He says, I start coveting like crazy. Right. We create Bacon <laughs> Monday. I can't even eat bacon on every Monday. That's what I mean, <laughs> well, you know, that's true. If If there were a divine command that said, thou shalt eat bacon every Monday, um, you know, we would do the same. Think about the Sabbath. Okay, what's this, what's the Sabbath commandment? No work. Right. It's like guys, you got a day off. And and what's the first question out of people's mouth? Well, now what exactly is work here? What are we talking about? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I just got a I just got a command from God to kick back. Wait one, a minute, one day of the week. We're pastors. It's the one day of the week that we do work, right? <laughs> well, I don't even work then. So <laughs> But you know what I'm saying is is God can even give a command to rest and we can't keep it. No. What do we do? We work. Yeah. So when he gives commands to work, what do we do? We don't work. <laughs> Man, are we screwed up? <laughs> Pretty much. You, you know, but but see, that's it. And I think I think one has to experience the futility of life under the law. Yeah. Not just know about it. It's not a textbook thing. And this is what I appreciate about Walter's thesis <clears throat> here: is this isn't something that you can sit around over scotch and a cigar. Pardon the cigar thing, but and never before sushi. I don't know where you got that from, but you know, I'm, I'm telling you right now, sushi is a delicacy. And you know, it it is what it is. I don't know why you have to keep going back to this. <laughs> yeah, because I'm disturbed at some fundamental foodie level. I'm not, I'm not making you smoke a cigar and eat sushi, you know. I, you know, I don't smoke cigars as much as I, I used know. to. You're a girl, that's why. I, my wife won't come near me for three days. And frankly, you know, I, I weigh out the risk versus the benefit. Well, you know, Paula just makes me strip down. She sends me out of the backyard. She hoses me down oh, for a few minutes. and then know, With a power wash. She says, uh, you know, go brush your teeth and, and use uh, some mouthwash. She, and, she and basically okay. fires up the power washer. <laughs> just sort of, sort of rinses you down. Yeah. But uh, you'd have to floss with a power washer after smoking. So, so good. So a nice Monte Cristo. I mean, I have to admit, you know, what can I say? But it's good stuff. It also helps you to sing low bass notes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Where See, was my, I? my voice never changed, so I just smoked cigars, and so now it sounds like... This business of law and gospel, though, even, even our discussing it here is, is, is not really taking on what it's about. You really do have to experience it in the sense of knowing you are an empty-handed beggar before God, or as Ehlert says, you are nothing more than a mathematical point, hmm. a zero, and Christ is everything. And you in Christ is that's your salvation, and 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 that's something that just simply can't be coolly studied. It's something that is is learned in in life, the school of yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. And and the longer you deal with other people and their problems and your own problems, the more you you start to see this, especially if you have a grasp on the gospel. We have to take a break. We'll be back shortly. 
Welcome back to the God Whispers. I'm Craig Denofrio, and I continue to be Bill Swirla. Yeah, I've given up hope for him. Mm-hmm. He's he's still Bill Swirla. He's gonna always be that way. The same old, same old. Stubborn. He's just stubborn. Thesis three: Rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and highest art of Christians in general and of theologians in particular. It is taught only by the Holy Spirit in the school of experience. You bet. That's you know, it's all in the question. I think. What's the question? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. So some guy comes into your office. He says, Pastor, is it okay to divorce your wife? Okay. And, and, and so now, now this is the school of experience. When, when you get posed a question like that, ah. and, and I have learned over, over the years to, to ask, well, why exactly are you asking? Right. That's the school of experience. So- <laughs> <laughs> because if you come out of the shoot and say, uh, you know, no... Which I mean, it, it, generally, that that's right. a, then then you you don't know what that no is spoken into. You know, is this is this some guy who divorced his wife twenty years ago and and is you know just right? You want to know the context? I or, mean, or if, is this if some just, guy who's planning to divorce his wife next month? <laughs> yeah, if he just walks into your office. But I mean, if you're having a discussion in Bible class and somehow the topic of divorce comes up and they say, well, what do we think about that? Or, you know, what... I still ask, why are you asking? <laughs> it tends to cut down on questions, a too. Lot, a lot of the times my answer goes like this. You could do that, but you won't be happy that you did it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> that, that's right. You know, what Walter says under this thesis, he says, a minister must be able to distinguish whether he is facing a hypocrite or a true Christian. Yeah, good luck. That's a, that's a scary statement. A, a person still spiritually dead or one that has already been roused from his sleep of sin, one who's tempted by the devil in his own flesh, or one who has been given over to the rule of the devil because of his malice. Mm. What what uh, true Christian isn't a hypocrite? Exactly. An inexperienced person readily takes a hypocrite for a true Christian. I don't know why I just quoted Holy that. Because, smokes. Wow. An inexperienced readily takes a hypocrite. You know, the word hypocrite means actor in Greek. Right. Hypocrites. And, and a good one, you can't tell. Right. <laughs> I, so I, wait, what was that last line that you read there? Uh, an inexperienced person readily takes a hypocrite for a true Christian. You know, whenever you see the word "true," get a little get a little nervous there. Yeah, I, I mean, this is. Does Walter have some sort of gnosis here? He can he can look yeah, into people's know, souls or something. You, or? you know what this is? This is this is this is his pietism creeping in here. Yeah, and you see this a lot: true, sincere, heartfelt, that kind of stuff. Um, because you know, quite truthfully, it, it, in fact, the Augsburg Confession won't even make the distinction. They, they acknowledge that evil men and hypocrites do exist together with Christians right. in the church uh, with the assurance that it doesn't affect the efficacy of the word and the sacrament, right. period, yeah. end of discussion. No attempt to try to distinguish between the two. I don't know how to do how that. How on earth would you do this? I, um, I... Well, I would have to look into the soul of the person and and discern, you know. But but in that, I just find guilt on myself because I'm a stinking hypocrite. Well, yeah, we've been saying that for years. <laughs> well, actually, you're, you're not you're supposed to build up your brain. Actually, you're, you're not you're killing I, me. You know, when people say the church is full of hypocrites, you know, I, what's the first thing we say? We get together, we say, "I a poor miserable sinner." Now, you know, yes, there may be people who actually don't believe that. 
I'm you know. I am heartily sorry and sincerely repent of my sin. No, I I I'm hardly sorry and my <laughs> repentance is usually insincere. Well, that's why I wish those adjectives would go away because or those adverbs would go away. Yeah, because but, because those those are those are I think a little bit of residual pietism that that lurks around in in Missouri circles. Yeah, there's there's a Scandinavian confession that I actually like that says something to the effect of not as I should but as I ought. Mhm. I confess my sins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's better. Or not as not as I should, uh, but as I can. Something to that effect. Or even better, you know, just just leave out the adverbs. I'm sin. sorry for these things, and I repent of them. Yeah, that's it. And if I'm not sorry, please help me to be sorry. Yeah, I'm, which so, is I'm usually, sorry. I'm not sorry. <laughs> which is usually asking God to kick you in the teeth. And well, you that's, know, that's a really scary one to ask for. It's you know, a little bit it? like saying, uh, you know, the only truth that a liar can say is, "I am a liar." <laughs> there you go. And so, so the only truth a sinner can actually say under the law is, "Really, I am a sinner." Right. And and it's not a matter of degrees and and things like that. It's simply confessing, saying the same, saying the same thing that the word says, that the law says. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, you know, actually, the, this this quote was not what I thought it was going to be when I quoted it. But it it does lead to kind of an alarming thing um, that that I can't see how much the school of experience is going to be able to teach you um, a counterfeit Christian from a real one. <laughs> I guess maybe if you spend enough time with your parishioners and see them in action enough, you might kind of get the idea of. This guy sure doesn't act like someone redeemed by Christ, mm. but uh, that would be in the school of experience, I guess, because you have to have enough experience with that person to kind of get a grip on it. See, the way I take it is is the school of experience, it's like the practice of medicine. <clears throat> you You learn medical techniques and you learn all kinds of things in medical school and terminology and, and, and uh, diagnoses and prescriptions and whatnot, but but what do they call what do they call? what a doctor does practice he's practicing and 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 so he's always applying and 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 uh refining these skills um i've i've i have have you noticed how long you've been in the ministry now uh 12 years 12 yeah have you noticed over the years that you approach um the same situation differently today than you did at the very beginning Yeah, absolutely i take a lot less stuff so serious one well l- let me give you an example you know say say um say a couple uh comes to you and and they're they're basically they're they're, t- they're coming there to tell you they're getting a divorce yeah uh, do you treat that any differently today than you would have 10 years ago 12 years ago um i'm sure i do i'm not i'm not really thinking you know, nowadays I realize the pastor's the last one to ever find out these things. Well, that's you know, usually yeah, that, the paperwork's filed before we even get word of it. The school of experience teaches you that. Yeah, too. yeah. <laughs> you're the <laughs> you're the last to know. Yeah, and and you know, so usually you know it's it's too late at this point, and they aren't really looking for absolution at this point. They're looking for permission or or just a wink and a nod or something like that. Uh, you know, the questions once again arise, why? Why are you getting a divorce? What's going on here? Has there been uh, some sort of extramarital affairs going on? Has somebody beaten the children or, or the spouse or, you know, what's going on here? A couple of things that I've learned, uh, first of all, and, and that's just, I'm just, we're just kind of speaking of this as an example, but, but um, things are not always as they appear to be. No. 
And so usually there's there's kind of this front front running accusation and excuse coming in, but then as time goes on, sometimes a long time, you realize that it's the innocent party is not so innocent. No, uh, and and yeah. that every everybody's got their little hand to play in this game, and uh, so so there's that aspect of it. I think early on, I would have just kind of taken the the approach of just just blast them with the law. Hmm. You know, divorce is a sin. Christians are not to get divorced. If you get a divorce, we're going to excommunicate you. Yada, you know that that kind of thing, and basically just 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 put up an electrified fence. Right. Um, these days, I'm I'm less inclined. I mean, I certainly will acknowledge that divorce is a sin, and uh, certainly talk about the ramifications of of you know basically breaking the covenant of marriage and 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 this kind of thing, but but also um, bringing them to. Uh, recognize who they are as baptized children of God, and and more or less leaving them in the realm of freedom. Yes, you are free to get a divorce. You are free not to. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I find myself far less directive, far far more um, saying, "Look, your problem's not a bad marriage. Your problem it, it, it's it's about Christ. Yeah, let's go there first. Hmm. So yeah, I tend to be more more I think Christ oriented today than I was 17 years ago. Yeah, I'm also less inclined to try to change people's pattern of behavior. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's like, well, you need to stop doing this and you need to start doing that. And blah, you mean blah, blah. like that scab that I just picked on my forehead? Yeah, which I'm just utter, utterly fascinated yeah, by. I'm, like, is... I'm, I'm over here just <laughs> bleeding. <laughs> But you know you I'm hemorrhaging over you here. you cannot you cannot change people's behavior certainly the the Holy Spirit can the word of God uh, killing making us alive does does change us to to some extent but uh, this business of trying to rehab people just doesn't work no you know we 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 die we rise well and that's one of the things that I've always mentioned uh, that is so different from my past in the fundamental world versus now. In the fundagelical world, if you're drinking too heavily or something like that, it's always, oh, brother, the, you've grieved the Holy Spirit. The The Lord has departed from you. You're a backslider, and you need to repent. You need to, to get saved again. You need to rededicate your life to Christ. And now as a Lutheran pastor, I'll pretty much say, you realize that that's not good and that uh, the Lord has said, don't do these things. But if you feel so compelled to do it, Knock yourself out. You still have a savior, but I'm going to warn you right now, it's not going to end well for you if you continue like this. You're going to end up with DUIs and a and a bad liver and all sorts of, you know, terrible stuff. You're going to lose friends and family and everything else. You know, but knock yourself out. If you really have to go there, you still have a savior, but you're an idiot. Well, it's it's like saying you are doing so in view of your own salvation. Yeah. Um, and this is this is the tight wire that one plays, I think, with the law and the gospel, is that is that you you, you can never, I I do not believe that the the, the cross of Jesus there, there's a place where that cross does not answer for some sin or does not atone for some sinner, right? And therefore, even in the midst of somebody's sin, that person still has a savior in in the dead and risen Jesus. And the thing that's really weird is when God looks at that baptized person doing the stupid stuff, he only sees Christ there in his place. See, that's the amazing thing. I, I You know, I've had recent experiences where I've talked to people who are kind of in the throes of bad things. Yeah. And to still 
you know, first of all, to acknowledge the wretchedness of their sin, to point out not only the temporal but the eternal consequences of that, and then to remind them in baptism they're clothed with Christ and covered and forgiven even now, and their minds are blown by that. Yeah. You know, I, I think I, I, I lost the place here, but, but uh, Walter says something like, we have a much better ear for the law than we do for the gospel. <laughs> and I, I have had people say, almost literally say to me, um, you are, you know, you're kidding. You know, you're telling me that I'm forgiven. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're nuts. Yeah. You know, they're telling me that. And, and I, I think that's kind of the, the biggest change that I've seen is I'm, I'm much more apt to apply the gospel to the worst situations hmm. than, than to dwell on the law. What I've discovered is that most people are expecting to, by the time they haul to the pastor, they're expecting a trip to the woodshed. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it's, it's like you don't, expect, you don't expect a medicine. You'd expect a spanking. Right. You know, and, and this, is, this is what I think the, 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 the art, the practice of, of this is, is, is making, making the sound diagnosis, which means listening and mm-hmm. asking the right diagnostic questions, and then applying the balm of Gilead, you know, the, the, the gospel of Jesus, precisely on the place where the wound is. Yeah, it's that Romans 2 passage in action that it's, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. <laughs> Isn't that... <laughs> yeah. Whoa! You and, know, and I, I thought it was the threats of punishment. Yeah, well, usually the deal is this. By the time that somebody comes in to see you as a pastor, they're already feeling pretty beat and and pretty much like they need relief from this sin one way or the other and when you meet them with the gospel you're meeting them with a medicine that they're showing up knowing that they need i go to the doctor and he he just rips me a new one every time because i'm overweight and i've come to expect it. and i go to the doctor and i realize whatever's wrong with me he's going to say well the first thing is you need to lose about 50 pounds you know and uh then he goes on from there but i end up leaving with a prescription for the sore throat or whatever I have that really isn't related at all. You know, by the time that they come to us as pastors, they're feeling, they're feeling the results of that illness. They're feeling the sickness. And we don't need to sit there and lecture them all the time. Now, if they're a total sociopath or psychopath, you know, maybe they're coming to brag. But in general, they're usually coming because they're struggling. And at that point, why would you kick them when they're already down? Am I right or am I right? Right, I'm right. You got another nugget there. To I read? have another nugget here. Um, page fifty-five in Dow, for what it's worth. But uh, Walter, another point that you will have to bear in mind while writing your sermons is not to say anything that may be misunderstood. Oh yeah, good luck. Uh, <laughs> f- for instance, this statement is liable to misconstruction. Anyone quote anyone who anyone sinning purposely and knowingly falls from grace. No, now he's saying that that's liable to be misunderstood. Oh, thank you. For true Christians occasionally sin with intent and knowledge. Note the occasionally, right? (laughs) Uh, Namely, when they are, so to speak, rushed by a sinful passion from within or by allurements from without. Such sins are called hasty sins. (laughs) Here is one with a wrathful temper, though as a rule amiable, something crosses his path and suddenly he boils over in angry speech. Kind of like on the freeway, just about, you know... Yeah, I, Every day. I occasionally do that. In such a case, the Spirit of God will administer to the culprit this rebuke, Behold, what a miserable creature thou art, and prompt him to ask God's forgiveness. 
It is true indeed that a Christian sinning intentionally grieves the Spirit of God every time. The Holy Spirit will not take part in his action. Regarding this matter, we must therefore speak to the people in this matter. You are treading on dangerous ground. The Holy Spirit will withdraw from you, and instead of making progress in your Christianity, you'll be thrown back if you do not repent and remain genuinely penitent. This sin may be your ruin. Hmm. 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 Equally liable to misconstruction would be this statement. Good works are not necessary, only faith. It would be correct to say good works are not necessary to obtain salvation. Right. But I cannot remain on the way to heaven if I'm, going, if I'm doing no good works. Besides, God has certainly commanded good works. He demands that we do good works. One more. The following statement, too, would be liable to be misunderstood. Sin does not harm a Christian. True, a sin committed because of the frailty of our flesh does not immediately hurl the doer into disfavor with God. Nevertheless, it harms him. There is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, says Paul, but he does not say there's nothing sin, that, that, that there is nothing sinful to them. <laughs> in fine, you cannot be, or, or excuse me, uh, you know, in, in finally, uh, you cannot be too careful in your preaching. You know, you kind of hear that all the time. You want to make, you want to make a point like all the way through, so you say something that's way off on one side, and uh, and and of course, somebody picks it up and runs with it in the other direction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that's what, again, this is where the, the experience factor comes in. Um, it, it would be like a doctor uh, writing the same prescription for everybody um, with, a, say, a runny nose. Mm-hmm. Even though there are many causes of a runny nose, uh, and, and he's not doing the diagnosis. Have, have you ever started a sermon as a heretic? Oh, just 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 like you know, you you talk about how we're saved by works and keeping the Ten Commandments and and all this, and and then you know, two or three minutes in the sermon, you say this is most certainly true if you're a Pharisee, you know, or something like <laughs> no, that. No, that's a misdirection. I I I I don't I don't in general use. Maybe mis- that's why my church is struggling so. Yeah, much. Yeah, could be <laughs> that you know that that could get irritating after a while. Well, I. Not saying I do that often, but I have done that. Usually, I, I I go off on different kicks. Um, the, we're talking about like how to start a or how we start a sermon. Um, lately, I've been starting them off with questions, sort of mm. rhetorical device. Uh, for example, we had the uh, the parable of the uh, the father with two sons, aka the prodigal son. So you're leading your parishioners to believe that you don't know the answers. No, these are rhetorical <laughs> questions. So I I, I, I know their questions. Their questions like when when you pray, "Our Father who art in heaven," what kind of father are you thinking of? Mm-hmm. You know, is he kindly? Is he judgmental? Is he harsh? Is he a disciplinarian? Blah blah blah. So, but I, you know, I start with questions. Uh, there was a time when I I would start. I'd come right out of the starting gate with a summary sentence that basically said what the whole thing was about. Well, why didn't you just leave your sermon at that? Because you feel like they're not getting their money's worth if you don't go on for They would minutes? feel like they're not getting their money's uh, worth, uh, and, uh, I, and I would hear about <laughs> it. Have you ever had parishioners complain because your sermons are too short? No. I have. How that long, that how long do you go? Uh, 12 to 25 minutes, depending. Wait, 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 wait. 12 to 25 is a vast difference. Yeah. Well, somewhere... I think the line of demarcation is 20 minutes. I think if you go over 20 minutes, you're one of those long guys. On occasion, I hit 25, but that's wow. pretty rare. Wow, 25? Yeah, on occasion. Well, you, you got to realize, I grew up in churches where the pastor would preach for 40 minutes. No, I did too. I, you know, my pastor, in a Lutheran church? You bet. And, and people still came? Yeah, well, they didn't have any choices. Oh. <laughs> this was back in the day when you didn't just sort of hop, skip, and jump every time something irritated you at church. You know, you stuck it out. 
In fact, you were sticking it out on behalf of your grandfather who stuck it out. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that the swirlers will be here yeah. long after you're gone, that's ex- mister. That's, exact- <laughs> that's exactly how it works. That's, that's it's, right. It's, it's a very, My grandfather went to this church. It's a very Eastern <laughs> idea there, kind of like the Muslims, you know? Is it, yeah. Uh, you know, I won't get you, but my grandson will kill yeah, you. That's that, okay. No, that's right. They're patient. Furthermore, my grandson will kill your grandson, and they, he won't even know why he's killing your <laughs> it was, grandson. It was long-suffering is what it was. <laughs> but I think 20 minutes is, 20 minutes is the, um, the, the, that's the, that's the, the line there, in my opinion. Okay. I, I tend to go about 16 almost consistently, unless I'm really way, way off my, my charted course, which happens once in a while, but... Uh, 18 at the, the far outset, but boy, 20 would be, wow, that, that would be... Well, you don't understand. My sermons are so dynamic and so enthralling <laughs> that 25 <laughs> minutes for me seems like 10 minutes for you. See, but, that's... But, but you say you can be as short as 12? Yeah, I, I, see, I've gone there's as short your, as 12. There's your problem, Grasshopper, is, is that, is that you've you got to be consistent. My answer is... If they I, just heard 25 minutes, they figure you're slumming it with 12. But if they get 15 minutes consistently all the time, ah, that's it. I preach as long as the text requires. Ah. That's the way I see it. Uh, okay. If it's a text where I can say it all in 12 minutes, and I say it all in 12 minutes. If it requires 25 minutes, then, you know, I'm probably overdoing it, but such is the way. I got one here. First John 3, 19 and 20. We read... Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. I like the King James here. Um, he, he writes, Walter writes, excuse me, I had a burp. When our heart does not condemn us, it is easy to distinguish law and gospel. That is the state of a Christian. But he may get into a condition where his heart condemns him. Do what he will, he cannot silence the accusing voice within. It calls to him again and again, remembering or reminding him of former sins. The recollection of some long-forgotten sin may suddenly start up in him, and he is seized with a terrible fright. Now, if in that moment a person can rightly divide law and gospel, he will fall at Jesus' feet and take comfort in Jesus' merit. That, however, is not easy. One who is spiritually dead regards it as foolish to torment himself with former sins. He becomes increasingly indifferent toward all sins. A Christian, however, feels his sin and also the witness of his conscience against him. I don't know if I agree with that one part there, that one who is spiritually dead regards it as foolish to torment himself with former sins. I, I've seen a lot of pagans that beat themselves over things that they've done in the past and right. and all the rest. You know, I think it's Kate Capon who says that we all, in one way or another, attempt to make atonement for our Absolutely, sins. Absolutely, yeah. And so we will offer up all kinds of crazy <clears throat> sacrifices to try, to try to quiet that very thing. Yeah, we're all religious people. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if it's not a religion of Christianity or Islam or whatever... We're going to invent our own religion to atone for our sins. And, you know, a lot of times maybe it's just kind of suppressed or held under, but, but when, uh, when, when you're facing your own mortality or when, you're, you're, you know, when you have one of those introspective moments, uh, yeah, certainly, I, I, I don't—that would be like saying that the law is not at work in everybody. Hmm. Now, whether you fall at the feet of Jesus in response to that or not, that's kind of the Christian question. Right, and, and I think Luther's response to this is pretty much— 
you know, when the devil's accusing you like this, hold up your baptismal certificate and say, I'm a back baptized child of Jesus Christ, you get away from me, you idiot, and, you know, probably throw your inkwell or something else at him, and, uh, you know, declare yourself to be redeemed, and you can't accuse me here. And uh, this is nothing more than the accusations of Satan creeping into our ear holes or into our brains and, and reminding us of the things that we've already been forgiven of over and over again. Yeah, I think I know what, what Walter's trying to say here is that if we become indifferent to the sins of our past, then we will also be indifferent to the sins of our present. Mm. And, you know, Luther himself said that the entire life of a Christian is one of repentance. So, yeah. so you know, whether you're looking at your, your past, your present, or, or speculating about your future, there's going to be the, the constant need of repentance, you know, the, oh, wretched man that I am. Hmm. Yeah, I suppose if I had no recollection of my sins whatsoever, I'd probably feel that I was a pretty good person, huh? Exactly. Yeah. You know, in fact, that that's 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 the kind of the funny thing is is that we are forgiven, but we're not permitted to forget. Yeah, but there comes a point where we have to be able to say to our parishioners, "Jesus has forgiven you; He's cast this away from you, as far as the east is from the west." Now you're free to forgive yourself too, and to move on and stop flogging yourself with these things. Well, yeah. I think it's in that last part. Stop flogging yourself. Certainly, you should never should never have been flogging yourself to begin with, because he was flogged for you in your place. Exactly. Um, this is not to say forget about it or no, just no. Let, you know th- this kind of thing. And and forgiving yourself, I don't understand that one because well, because... receive the forgiveness that you've been given. <laughs> there How's you go. That? There you go. And and apply it. it is basically, believe it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, think about David. David never really forgot the sins that he did. In fact, uh, the pages of Scripture keep reminding him. <laughs> you know, even yeah. the genealogy of Matthew uh, does not whitewash, doesn't cover up his sin. It, it, it doesn't even re- refer to Bathsheba by her name, but she's wife of the wife of Uriah. Hmm. So it kind of underscores David's sin, but in so doing, it underscores the greatness of God's mercy in Christ, too. Mm. And I think that's the big difference. The more profound sense of our sinfulness we have, the greater a sense of the Savior, of Christ as Savior we have. And and this is where Walther is right there, is that the Christian flees to Christ and uses Christ against the accusation of the law. And so, yeah, I mean, I I think, um, why else would the psalmist say, remember not the sins of my youth or my rebellious ways, except that he's remembering the sins of his youth and his rebellious ways. I suppose so. I just have one of those consciences where I flog myself all too often for Uh, stupid stuff in my past. See, that's, and that's, that's self-atonement. That's, that's the basis of all religion. Right. right And I have to stop myself from doing it and saying, you know what? Christ has forgiven you. Just, just shut up. Right. I remember (laughs) Dr. Corby used to say something like, you know, Christ bore the burden of your sin, why the heck are you trying to do the right. same? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, and, and to what you were saying a minute ago, I'm convinced that, especially as you look at Romans 7, that the more sanctified we become, the less sanctified we actually see ourselves to be because our sin is that much more pronounced in our faces. And and we're we're looking at ourselves and we're saying, man, am I a stinker? I, I really... I'm I'm no good whatsoever in and of myself. How much time do we have? Uh, about a minute and a half. 
There's a great uh, concluding paragraph here from Walter that I, I marked uh, as we were kind of mulling over this. Um, he says, a word in conclusion, in order that a pastor may correctly judge and treat people, it is of the utmost importance for him to understand temperaments. Mm. I find this, this, this is very pastoral. When observing a fault of temperament, my intellectual vision must not become blind to a person's good traits. For instance, a person of sanguine dis- disposition is always of good cheer, never troubled with gloomy thoughts, and yet he may not be a Christian. Mm. Mm-hmm. These traits are inborn in him. Now, if you discover the sanguine temperament in a certain person and he becomes sad when you preach the law to him, you may take it for granted. Granted, the word has taken effect in his soul. When you meet a person of a melancholy disposition, observe that he's habitually sad and is of an austere mien. You must not forthwith conclude that he's sorrowing over his sins. He just mm. might be constantly depressed. Is what it is. But when he suddenly becomes lively, when you proclaim the gospel to him and you observe something in his demeanor contrary to his natural temperament, you may safely conclude that the gospel has taken effect in him. That's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Or you may meet with a phlegmatic person, <laughs> whatever that means, Oh, who loves loves his ease and hates to be disturbed in his reflections. Do not think when you have calmed such a person that you've done so by preaching the gospel. Or lastly, you may deal with a person who is of choleric disposition. That'd be like me. When he, when he becomes despondent under your ministration, you may be assured that it was through the effect which God's word had upon him. So, so Walter says, basically, if people sort of act contrary to their normal disposition, you know God's word is at work. That's very strange. Well, and that means you have to actually know your parishioners. And that's the, that goes back to the practice. It, yeah. it is a practice, and it's learned as, as part of the school of experience and not something that can simply be gleaned from uh, the Internet or classroom. We're out of time. We'll pick up with, art, or with uh, lecture number four, or thesis number four, next time on The God Whispers. All right. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend in Jesus. Jesus is a friend of mine. As it should be, he taught me how to turn my cheek when people laugh at me. I've had friends before, and I can tell you that he's one who will never leave you flat. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend in Jesus. Jesus is a friend.